There was this kid I grew up with. He was younger than me. Sort of looked up to me, you know. We did our first work together. Worked our way out of the street. Things were good. We made the most of it. During Prohibition, we ran molasses into Canada. Made a fortune. Your father, too. As much as anyone, I loved him and trusted him. Later on, he had an idea to build a city out of a desert stopover for GIs on the way to the West Coast. That kid's name was Mo Green. And the city he invented was Las Vegas. This was a great man. Man of vision and guts. And there isn't even a plaque or a signpost or a statue of him in that town. Someone put a bullet through his eye. No one knows who gave the order. When I heard it, wasn't angry. I knew Mo, I knew he was headstrong, talking loud, saying stupid things. So when he turned up dead, I let it go. And I said to myself, this is the business we've chosen. I didn't ask who gave the order because it had nothing to do with business. Glop Culture is brought to you by the fine folks at Encounter Books. This week's featured title, The Smart Society, Strengthening America's Greatest Resource, Its People, by Peter D. Salins. For 15% off this or any title, use the coupon code RICOCHET at EncounterBooks.com. So here we are for yet another Glop Culture. This is John Pudhort speaking to you from the 40th floor of the fabulous Palazzo Hotel (laughs) in Las Vegas, Nevada. And with us, as always, is uh, Jonah Goldberg, formerly of uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, last week, but that I think correct. Washington, yeah. D.C. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm losing money not being there right now. Yeah, it's costing you money just to, just, yeah. just, just to sit around your house. It's awful. And, uh, and Rob Long, the other voice there uh, in, uh, I believe, in sunny Venice, California. Is I'm that- in California. I, 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 don't, I don't approve of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the gambling. No gambling, no dancing. Uh, hey, hey, guys! No mixed swimming. I'm ahead. Yeah. I'm ahead. I'm ahead. F- well over four hundred dollars, and I was here four days, and I gambled for approximately eleven minutes. What did you play? What did you play? I played blackjack and slots. Oh, and slots! The secrets. I, I won. Slots. I won. I won fifty bucks in the slots. Oh, give me a break! You know, you I lost. did. You no slots, you lose dignity points. You're just no, saying no, no. Of course I lose. Of course I lost dignity points. But the key thing, and this is my tip to people about gambling. Oh wait, wait. Which is why John you should Ford's never got gambling tips. Go I have a gambling tip, which is why you should never travel to gamble. Because I came here for a conference. Here's the tip. The thing is, if you win, if you win, as if you're gambling, you win in about five minutes, and you have to get up from the table and not go back. Yeah, so the problem is if you go to Las Vegas to gamble, you're going to end up losing money right. because you have nothing else to do. There's nothing else to do except maybe go to the pool a little or you know go to a show. But um, 
so basically you can win at gambling if you if you decide that you will leave the table after five minutes. Yeah. That's, that's really the key. That's pretty much everybody's gambling advice, no matter who you are, is to get up and go and take your winnings and leave. And don't ever think you can get, get earn it back because you can never earn it back. Right. So, or you can never so, double it. But you're not on a street. You guys are such downers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I saw the idea of your money around, you know, keep, you know, tell them, you know, I want a Tanqueray and Tab every 10 minutes and keep them coming because I got a long drive ahead of me and just have fun with it. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's my, that's, that's my, that's my man. I just have this I image mean, you, of, of John at, at, at the slots, you know, the bloop, 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 all that, you know, all that stuff. And you're there and you've got a copy of commentary in your pocket and maybe a, a, a book you're reading about the, uh, the, the, you know, the history of, uh, uh, you know, Indo-Chinese something or other, and then and, exactly. and maybe just a couple of pencils and stuff. And you just don't look like you're. I mean, what are you wearing? Well, I, I actually all week I was wearing suits because I was I yeah. was going to a conference and speaking at a conference. So not only was I the only person in the in the casino who was leaving after seven minutes and you know reading yeah, a book like while a I was at the slots, I was in a, I was in a suit all the time. You look like you're, the, you're representing Meyer Lansky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the sartorial Myers boys over there by the uh, by the wheel of fortune slots. My Myers boys over there by the <laughs> Ike out table. You know, don't start with me about Mo Green and Fredo because right. you know I saw. I mean, I, now, now, Joan, you were there. Now, what, sometimes I you got to slap in, some people around yeah, to gotta, make my casino run right. It's money. I, I imagine Jonah, you were at some point in in when you were in Vegas in in a. I don't. I don't want to say full sequins, but something different from from what you wear normally, right? Well, I was actually in the private room at the Barbary Coast, reenacting that scene from the Deer Hunter, <laughs> screaming "Bitty Mao, Bitty Mao, 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 Mao." How did it? Well, you're here, so I guess you you won ten thousand dollars. Actually, my mom tells this story about how I don't know thirty years ago she was in Vegas with some of her very jaded. Uh, cynical journalist friends, um, and they went to the Liberace Museum. Yeah, and the docent, yes, who took it all very, very seriously, um, uh, brought them with great reverence to the world's largest rhinestone. And it was at this point that my mom and her friends could no longer contain their, um lack of sarcasm and respect and they were right. actually asked to leave um <laughs> they were turfed that is, out that is so unfair because the liberace museum which is no more unfortunately no more, yeah. was one of the great american kitsch places well, ever beyond invented. that you can't it even was, say kitsch i went i went there in, in the summer of 1987 it had only been open for a little bit and uh it was in the tivoli gardens um, uh, which he is a little strip mall that he owned, uh, which had a really bad uh, Italian restaurant. And then on the other end of the strip mall was the Liberace Museum. And we were walking through a bunch of people, and uh, one, on one wall, there were all, uh, you know, the way they used to sell posters in the old days on these giant racks, and you kind of like, you know, you know, a page through them, like just a huge book. And all of his um, uh, uh, honorary degrees were there. You know, a doctor of music from the, you know, some t- tiny little colleges from the uh, Elliot Pope College of something, something and somewhere. And um, there, were, there were about 50 of them. And we were uh, – I was standing behind this this older couple and they were paging through them. And the woman said uh, to her husband, uh, look at all these degrees. 
And then he said with very, you know, incredible seriousness, yes, he was a very learned man. <laughs> I have uh, one. It's great. Have and then, one, of course, we went over to see the fur hot pants. Go ahead. Yes. Sorry. Well, I have one great uh, Las Vegas journalism story as follows. In <laughs> 1983, I was a researcher at Time Magazine working on the milestones section that week. Milestones being the obits and births and weddings section. Uh, that was the easily the most read thing in the magazine, by the way. Um, and uh, George Liberace, Liberace's brother, died, and it was decided to do a little, you know, five six paragraphs on his death. And as the researcher, I had to call his doctor and and verify the cause of death. And so I called his doctor, and the doctor didn't call me back. And I called the doctor, and the doctor didn't call me back. This section closed, you know, late Thursday night. And it was like Thursday afternoon and I was starting to panic because I could not I you know, my the rule was I had to I had to verify the cause of death with his doctor. The doctor wouldn't call me, wouldn't call me, wouldn't call me, wouldn't call me. I called like every his his assistant was getting more and more annoyed. And then I realized that he must have thought he was some Vegas doctor. And he must have thought that I was like some investigative journalist who was trying to go after him and you know for all i know you know he gave he he gave he gave that drug that killed michael jackson he wanted the to he George you wanted the dish on joey heatherton yeah right so finally i called back and i said listen i'll talk to you i said to his nurse i don't really care all i'm i'm not an i'm just a researcher all i need to know was you know did he in fact die of liver failure can you just right. please tell me because they won't let me go home. And she said, okay. And this guy got on the phone, the doctor, and he said, what do you want? And I said, I'm just calling from Time Magazine to verify the cause of death of George Labrach. And he said, it was liver failure. And he hung up the phone. And that was my uh, encounter with uh, the medicine, the Las Vegas medical oh, I was establishment. Hoping say, I was hoping you were going to say heartbreak. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, anyway, so gentlemen, should we get to, you know, uh, well, let's face it, guys, uh, before we get to the fun stuff, um, Hosanna, Obamacare is here. Yes, and before we do that, before we get into Obamacare and where Obamacare is, can I just say, if you are listening to this podcast, you are listening to a Ricochet.com production, and we are happy to have you listening. If you are listening to this podcast and you are a member of Ricochet, we're even happier to have you joining us as fellow members. If you are listening to this podcast and you are not a member of Ricochet.com, why don't you go check it out? Ricochet.com, we've launched 2.0. It was a little wobbly uh, as these things go, but it, it, uh, it looks great, and it's um, um, humming along, a little like Obamacare, I guess. Uh, and we would love to have you join and be a member and hear all the podcasts and join the conversations and interact with our contributors and our fellow members and join a fast-growing network of very smart people uh, all working to sort of um, uh, win back the country. So please go to ricochet.com. There are now tiered membership levels, so you can be kind of a regular old member or you can bump yourself up to the Margaret Thatcher level or the Ronald Reagan level. Uh, and the, those of you who are Ronald Reagan members, and we have many of them now, um, we thank you, especially thank you uh, for supporting us and for joining us and and for uh, the future of uh, a lot of good goodies that we're doing for you guys and for everyone. So. Go to Ricochet.com so and please join. So here's how Ricochet is like Vegas then, just to bring it all together. <laughs> at, at Ricochet, there's always one more red rope 
Yes. There's always one more <laughs> premiere plus level. Uh-huh. One more private elevator, one uh-huh. more room that if you upgrade now, you get the facial or whatever. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's outrageous. Well, it's not. There's not always one more, but there's. We we were responding to our members who wanted a, a slightly deeper experience with Ricochet, and we tried to create that. Uh, but uh, you know, we're conservatives. Nothing in life is free, uh, except apparently even helpful. even at Ricochet.com, there is income inequality among the top one percent. <laughs> I hey, this, sorry, run a here. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, amazingly enough, 82 squillion people signed up for healthcare yesterday. 82 good to today's uh, April 1st. Uh, I believe, according yeah. to the Washington Post, that 97 bajillion people signed up uh, yesterday. And now uh, everybody in America, Canada, and the uh, Outer Hebrides. Uh, has signed up for Obamacare. The uh, the triumphalist celebrations on Twitter yesterday that apparently uh, a suitable number of people was actually uh, had actually uh, gone to healthcare.gov and chosen their 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 plan rather than uh, be in violation of the law um, was really quite something to see because of course the big issue is not did people sign up for healthcare but are they happy, A, that they had to, and B, will they be happy with what they get? And both answers, I think, are almost assuredly going to be largely no. And the notion that that they that this program is going to be saved by the simple expedient of getting uh, rather fewer people to sign up than they were expecting anyway is really uh, quite a shocking example of, uh, you know, what was it that George Bush called it, the um, – the false, bi- the soft <laughs> the false bigotry, big- of, low soft bigotry of low expectations. Yeah, it, it does seem strange to me that they are doubling down on all of this. I mean, it's the idea that you just, you just, you, you get the apparently seven million, uh, seven million people probably will have signed up by the end of today or tomorrow or the week or whatever it is extended. There, there, there were seven million people. They, they may have hit the magic number that they said they needed after they decided they didn't need the magic number they thought they needed before. So uh, they, they are definitely hitting their lowered expectations. That's for sure. But the question really remains: there are big, big problems with the with with the service and with the the, the happiness. You put it, the happiness of the customers and whether they're even paying their bill. So I'm I'm, I'm just concerned. I'm just I'm just wondering what the what the political strategy is here? Is it just to keep, just to soldier on and pretend? Well, you know, so, I think they I mean, don't have any choice. Yeah, I mean, but I, just because I mean, I literally just wrote a post about this when I was when we were doing the chit chat before the podcast started, and you know, Sarah Cliff now with Vox Media, who has a who was with the Washington Post and did a lot of their healthcare stuff. She had this thing on Twitter this morning um, where she's talking about how. She's reminded of a piece she wrote back in December, and, and it, it informs why she's not surprised they hit the seven million. And it's all about how the uninsured are so desperate to get insurance that they're going to be persistent shoppers. Now, the thing is that I don't get about it is that um, by you know by virtually every credible estimate, you know that even the New York Times and the L.A. Times are going by. About four or five million of the Obamacare enrollees were people who lost their health insurance because of Obamacare. So this idea that somehow this that Obamacare met this unbelievably un, un, unmet and viciously desired need 
of insurance among the 30 to 40 million uninsured or 50 million uninsured people in this country is bizarre if the only evidence is, is that a net of bit two or three million people signed up on the exchanges, right? I mean, yeah, isn't I, the lesson of this that if, you, if you're the kind of person who's responsible and buys insurance on the individual marketplace, which was never cheap, and then the government takes it away from you unilaterally, that you're going to be yeah. a persistent shopper and go get more insurance? I mean, the evidence that the uninsured are desperate for this product especially if you don't count the Medicaid expansion, is just non-existent, and yet the media has bought into it entirely. Well, it, well the aren't media they, has aren't, they, they, aren't they counting the, the fact that they're going to have to pay $95 or whatever that fine is at the end of the year? I mean, isn't that eventually what they're going to say is, it counts as enrollment? Look, I, I think it's very simple. I don't think that either uh, the Obama administration or, or the liberal healthcare media, let's call it, have any, <laughs> have any, have any choice but to double down. This is this is I, I I I really think that the analogy to Iraq is very precise, which is to say it would have made no sense for Republicans either in 2004 or 2006 to run away from Iraq as it was getting unpopular. It was all they already owned it. Bush already owned it. The Republicans already owned it. They had no choice right. but to play the card, play it out. And Bush, in fact in September of 2004, largely turned the election on Iraq, which was not necessarily the thing that wise minds in the consulting community thought that he should do. Um, you know, he should talk about other stuff. But in fact, uh, he made five speeches on Iraq in the first two weeks of September leading up to 9-11. And and, you know, uh, gave himself the running room after the election, really, even three years later, to, to, to execute the surge. So if you're a believer in Obamacare, you have no choice. You're going to be tagged with it anyway. Right. Go ahead. Say that it's a success. Propagandize for it. Do whatever you can. Um, the, effort, <laughs> the effort by Democrats, you know, by red state Democrats to separate themselves from the vote they cast for it is nuts. They're not going to be able to. Tens of millions of dollars are going to be spent in their districts and in their and in their states making sure everybody knows they voted for it. So they better have the best possible argument for that vote and and it is now going to be the job of the healthcare propagandists in the media. What is the best to possible the argument for that vote? The best possible argument for that vote is uh, healthcare is terrible. American the American healthcare system was broken. Someone's finally done something to fix it. Uh-huh. Uh, you're going to have better healthcare. You're going to have more. You're going to have That's more right. healthcare. You're going to have better healthcare. The uninsured are going to be covered. Children are healthy. Twenty. You're yeah. twenty until you're twenty six. You're covered by your parents. Blah 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 blah. Whatever. Mine is, here's mine. Here's mine. Yeah. Mine is, um, fellas. I was on a very powerful antihistamine. <laughs> I just wasn't uh, that's mine. But you know, so I'm just saying this is this is I think rational. This is a rational strategy. It is a rational strategy to claim success. It does not it would not work. It would not help to claim failure. In some ways you could even say that Sarah Cliff, uh whom Jonah mentioned before, uh, who was working as she is now for Ezra Klein at the Washington Post, you know, by by panicking about how badly healthcare.gov was screwing up in in October she helped 
Obama and the Obama administration because they needed to get slapped in the face about the fact that they that the entire edifice right. of their domestic policy was going to collapse and that they needed to commit every and not to go through that classic thing of it's fine it's just a little there are some shortcomings and we're really going to have to you know that would that would have been very bad for them so in fact even when they were critical they were doing the program that they support a solid. Right. I agree with John, you know, on the analogy as far as it goes to Iraq. I, I, I actually wrote a couple of columns um, using that analogy. And, Me too. And, and Media Matters um, <laughs> Wait a minute, dressed I don't over do its that. head, as you might expect. Um, but the, the, it seems to me that the, the chief political difference between Iraq, the Iraq war and Obamacare, I mean, other than the, the total category error, which we have to be clear is that this is sort of a analogy. We're not actually saying going to war is exactly like building, right. you know, reforming healthcare. It's a, it's a political analogy. It's, right. not a, um, it's not a moral or factual analogy. Right. Um, I just bring that up because the, this, that distinction is utterly lost at the, you know, finger sniffing trolls at Media Matters. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, <laughs> the biggest difference, though, is that in a war, even though emotionally it's it affects a lot of us, it affects everybody, um, and psychologically it might affect everybody, um, the number of families in America that were directly affected by the war was fairly low. I mean, this is something people have written about a lot. It's about how so you know few how few politicians have family in the military how this is a burden that's being disproportionately carried by the all-volunteer force and all the rest. It's not like we have the draft anymore. Meanwhile, the political effects of Obamacare are so different in the fact, in the fact that, particularly if you look at the electorate that is going to be run, that is going to be voting in a midterm election, it is precisely the people, the middle class people who are getting screwed by Obamacare. You know, the, the people who are enrolling in Medicaid probably aren't huge midterm election voters. But the people in the individual marketplace who are sort of small times self-employed business people, small entrepreneurs and all the rest, those are the kinds of – who tend to be a little older and all the rest. Those are the kinds of people who show up and vote for midterm elections. And healthcare touches every single person's life in a way that – I mean maybe this would be a better country yeah. if, if everybody was affected by war the way that we were, say, in World War II. But the simple fact of it is – is that it's very different in terms of political salience and people's personal right. lives. Everyone is having, getting a letter from their employer saying they're going to lose their coverage or their coverage is going to be changed, their premiums are going to go up or their deductible is going to go up. People didn't get the equivalent letters affecting their pocketbooks during the Iraq war. And so the effects and, of spin are going to be a little different. Yeah, and, and it is not as though once you've signed up for Obamacare – uh, you know, uh, the other analogy people say is, well, you know, there was this big controversy over the prescription drug care benefit, Medicare Part D in 2003 and 2004, and then everybody loved it and it became a political net positive for uh, George Bush and the Republicans. Uh, there is no way that the government's involvement in the healthcare system is going to end up, at least in the in the coming months, being a net political positive for the people who voted for it. I mean, Medicare prescription, the Medicare prescription drug benefit handed out free prescription drugs to the people who got it. Once they got on the plan, everything was free, you know? Right, right. So that was good. You know, if, if you sign up for the Medicaid extension, 
for example, through Obamacare. Suddenly everything is free as long as your doctor accepts Medicaid. So right. that would be good. That's a very small number of people, relatively speaking, in this, you know, in, out of this number. The people who've signed up are just now on another health care plan, which is going to have every single annoying aspect of their old health care <laughs> plan, except it's probably going to be a little more expensive. A little more expensive. So, so uh, they still have to fill out forms. They're still going to be in that weird relation with the doctor. They're still going to be annoyed by you know the long wait times at the HMO, and they're going to say this is Obama's fault. That is why you know that is why a really risk averse politician, which Obama isn't, uh, I, I believe, you know, would have this is a would have gamed this out and said, you know, one problem of this is you're going to own the healthcare system. Is that what you want? You know, how on earth are you going to make the healthcare system work in the time frame in which you are functioning? Right. You're not. Stay also, away like, from this. Keep there's also going to be a lot of people clean. writing their congressmen to complain about, you know. My doctor did not give you know. I yeah, waited. Yeah, for the two nurse hours. was rude to me. I you know, yeah. and I Dear said Senator, to the nurse, you, know, you do something you, can about Can you imagine this. those horrible? You know those horrible uh, uh, presidential debates, the, the, the town hall debates, which are the worst, where they have these you know people, these pseudo random uh, Americans that that are then. Uh, petted and condescended to by the rich people uh, who run the debate, you know, like by uh, Diane Sawyer. That's a really interesting question. It's a wonderful so, question. It's a wonderful question. Really, um, uh, they're all, of course, you know, rigged and stuff. But but uh, now they're going to be like, uh, uh, you know, Mr. President, uh, I have a, a strange a twinge in my lower. I think it's L seven, <laughs> and my doctor, uh, and you know, you, the guy's going to have to come, walk up to the stage while the president of the united states so it gives him a quick exam does it hurt when i do this does it hurt when i do that uh, the, the level of of uh, of weirdness uh, the, the, that healthcare already already was so weird when you really thought of it like the idea that there was a strange ritual to going to the doctor and it had to be a doctor and and you had all the strange protocols almost medieval the way we treated the doctor now it's even worse so I, I sort of agree with you. I get your point. I, my, I guess my question really is more and more practical. Um, how bad is this going to be for them, especially in light of the fact that the, the, the recent polls say millennials, right? That's Obama's uh, – he owns that demo. Uh, the Democrats own the demo of the millennials. They're now down to 50 percent and dipping in approval rating from millennials. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem yeah, smart so to me. I saw your always perspicacious uh, post on Ricochet about this. Yes. Uh, before we came on, and is that good? Uh, is that perspicacious? Is that good? I don't know. I don't excuse me. It's not good because it's perspicacious. Perspicacious. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, it's so hot around here. I'm perspicaciously. Okay. So anyway, um, <laughs> it's the um, Oi! the Oi, it's hot. <laughs> Are you going to debunk it? Well, no, no, no. Are you going to debunk thought, the perspicacity? I, I thought some of the commenters made a good point, which is that. Um, just because he's at 50% with millennials doesn't mean the other 50% are Republicans. A lot of them could be, you know, Jacobins. But um, it's true. But it is relevant for a midterm election because yeah. that is the core. I mean, millennials are the living, breathing core of the Obama get out the vote effort. And if those guys just simply, you know, disproportionately more than you would even expect them to, don't show up at the midterms. That's not quite as good as voting Republican, but it's it's the next best thing, and it's definitely bad for Obama. 
Look, there's a there's a, a news story today about uh, terror among Democratic political professionals about Democratic turnout. Celinda Lake, who is one of the leading Democratic pollsters, said she thinks this could be, you know, a nuclear disaster. <laughs> That's what she said, not me. So, um, and if what they I, are st- am I just petty in the fact that I think this is awesome? What? Oh no, you'd have that- to have a heart of stone not to laugh. <laughs> have to laugh, of course. I just the the idea that for whatever many years we've been fed this steady gruel of your uh, you know triumphalism and and uh, you know this guy is the is the second coming and now he is he's presided over or probably will preside over a total disaster for the party. Uh, well, the, well, he will have presided he over. By the way, he'll, he will have presided over. Two disasters for the party, and and you know one triumph and one triumph for himself. Which so in in his in his estimation, that's probably a pretty good deal. Here's what I would say: Um, the striking the striking thing about uh, 2012, from what I was told by you know shell shocked Romney people after it happened, is the genius of the Obama campaign was. That it was not that people weren't telling pollsters that they would vote for Obama and therefore, you know, the poll numbers should have – their own poll numbers should have shown them – you know, should have shown Obama winning. It was that when they asked people about whether they themselves expected to vote – Obama voters, you know, they do this thing about how how excited are you to vote on a scale of 1 to 10 – Enormous numbers of people said they were ones or twos or threes. And the rule of thumb in politics for the last 30 years of polling has been nobody under a four votes. Nobody nobody who says they're four or under. Or, John, uh, is, that, is that your breakfast yeah. coming? It's not me. Oh. Nate me. It must be Jonah. Look at look how silent Jonah is. Well, he put himself on mute, but I just thought it was your breakfast. Oh, there we go. No, <laughs> no. So, but, right, I have so, your sandwich. <laughs> is that Although, no? That's my that's dog. Your dog. So, I was not anyway. making a knocking Sorry, sound guys. effect, and then she okay. thought it was not. So anyway, my my point is that is that you know they had very low intensity voters who were nonetheless convinced by an amazing turnout campaign to go out and vote for Obama, who after all you have to remember got four million fewer votes in twenty twelve than he I, did. I have to go deal with something. I'll I'll jump back on in a second. Okay. Anyway, so um, four million fewer voters. In 2012 than in 28, and right. still he generated the votes that he needed without Obama being there. Yeah, you don't. Those get much, ones, right? two, right? Those one, but I mean, those ones, twos, and threes are not going to vote. But, but and here's then my the question: question though. I mean, are the fours and fives going to vote? Are the sixes going to vote? Yeah. Here's my question: Is you get this weird? At, I mean, I get this weird. I I don't know if this is true. I have zero evidence for this, except that when and the, the message is exactly the same. Uh, he has not changed his politics. Uh, he's not changed his personality. That's for sure. And once you start lo- when, when you start losing support, the question is why, right? Especially why, if the product is the same, are people not eating that specific dog food? Right? They didn't change the recipe. It's just that it seems a little bit more losery, right? Loserish. Like, what's he doing? Like uh, this healthcare thing's been a big disaster. But it, but it could also be something else, and I think it might be something cultural, which is that there's a turn against big government behemoth solutions culturally there's a turn against all these big solutions and, and and your consumer product array in your life is nothing but personalized and customized and sort of uh, incredibly individual to you and 
I don't I think you can find a millennial, probably even a Gen X or Gen Y, uh, who who doesn't instinctively believe that at the very least technology should work. At the very most, there's probably a free market technological solution to some of these problems. Uh, I don't know anyone. I I, I don't even know liberals, diehard liberals in Los Angeles. The only diehard liberals I know live in L.A., right? And and, and absolute diehard Democrats who don't believe fundamentally that the public school uh, uh, teachers unions are a disaster and need to be broken. And once you sort of get there – you know, I, I, that, that's not that's usually the first question I ask when people say to me, "Tell me about why you're a Republican. Well, why are you conservative? Well, that's so crazy. Why?" And then I say, "Well, tell me why you support the, the public school teachers unions." And they go, "Well, I don't do that. I, I'm, right. no, I, I dissent there." Okay, well, we all dissent from certain things, but usually that's that's my my go to uh, question, and I almost always get the answer that I'm expecting that most normal people expect, which is yeah, yeah, they're they're awful, they have to be stopped. But look, the the meltdown here, I think, is very simple. You know, uh, Obama won in 2012 despite the economy, in part because people accepted the contention that he was not responsible for the financial meltdown, and he and that you know things were handed to him in a terrible state, and he should not be blamed. For the condition of the economy, which was still healing after after uh, multifarious disasters, nor can he be blamed for the mess in Iraq or the mess in Afghanistan or foreign policy or whatever because he inherited a mess. Obamacare is his mess, and it came into being on October first. Right, and nobody else bears responsibility for it <laughs> but him, yeah. but him, yeah. and the people who voted for it in Congress. So yes. if it were a triumph, as we all understood, if it were a triumph, it would have been, you know, FDR, it would have been democratic policy, political, ideological dominance uh-huh. for another generation. It is not a triumph. It is not going to work. It is going to be a mess and a disaster and a failure, and they are going to be the sole owners of it. No, no Republican voted for it at all. Right. So No all right. Republican. All right. Uh, I don't really – I don't it, – it, under those circumstances, by the way, you know, as I say, that's why I think they have no choice. They right. have no choice They've got to but do it. to – yeah. OK. Yeah. So listen. Uh, oh, I know, know what you're doing. Okay. I, I have to say uh, that this episode of uh, Glop Culture is brought to you by Encounter Books. This week's feature title, The Smart Society, Strengthening America's Greatest Resource, It's People by Peter D. Salins. The Smart Society offers a detailed blueprint for how the United States can recast its human capital policies to make all Americans, not just a privileged elite, smarter and more successful than ever before at the same time, stemming the size and cost of its welfare state. The spectacular centuries-long success of the United States is based on its having determined early on to be a smart country. Single-mindedly developing institutions and practices that encouraged and enabled its native-born citizens to maximize their economic and social potential and welcoming opportunity-seeking foreigners to join them. Over the last four decades, however, the vaunted United States human capital machine has been breaking down, dimming the social and economic prospects of millions of Americans, crowding the nation's welfare rolls and prisons, and sharply inflating the the size and cost of the nation's safety net. Uh, very interesting book, very interesting thesis. For 15% off this title, go to EncounterBooks.com and use the coupon code RICOCHET at checkout. Our thanks to Encounter Books for sponsoring 
glop culture. Now, Rob. Yes. Uh, when I when I say the following word to you, does your blood freeze? Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. Ready? Coke. I don't mean the soda Coke. I mean K O C H. The Brothers yes, Coke. Yes, the Brothers Coke. They're yeah, they scare me. The Coke Brothers because they have a radical uh, right wing agenda and they're uh, trying to cir- circumvent the Constitution and stuff. Right? I mean, I well, that, keep forgetting that's what them. They're telling us they because they, they're 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 in fact libertarian, right? Oh, they're libertarian. Listen, here's the funny thing. So it has been decided in the in the uh, in the hallways and uh, quarters and byways of Democratic Party power uh, that this year's monster is going to be are going to be the uh, Koch brothers right. uh, who uh, run a, um, a privately held family uh, mining and oil business. Um, David Koch is, uh, by, by some uh, estimates, the richest man in New York. His brother Charles uh, lives elsewhere. David uh, ran uh, as the vice president uh, on the Libertarian Party line in 1980. Um, Here's what's remarkable about the fact that they are the ones who are being demonized. A, uh, in terms of political giving in the United States, they rank 59th on the list of the most generous uh, givers. 59th. What they did do was in 2010, they hosted a conference uh, for a lot of uh, Republican donors and uh, conservative givers uh, about what could be done to stop Obama in his tracks. That attracted the attention of, of Jane Mayer, the hatchet person uh, against uh, conservatives at uh, The New Yorker, and she wrote this de- demonizing profile. Uh, and ever since, um, uh, Democrats have, have increased in intensity uh, their use of the Koch name as a – as a pejorative and as a threat to the Republic. The other interesting thing about the Kochs and about David Koch in particular is he is astoundingly philanthropically generous. Yes. Uh, everyone in New York is in right. his debt. He gave a right. hundred million dollars to, right. to Lincoln center. He has given a hundred million dollars for a new uh, museum at New York Presbyterian. He is rebuilding the plaza and promenade outside the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Right. Um, but, these so, are so, the, yeah. These are nice people. But so so why why are they picking on them? Is it are they really? I mean, they, they seem like they'd be better demons, right? Or are they out of? De- how could they be out of demons? These are cons- <laughs> you know, you're telling me that in the entire uh, pantheon of conservative uh, contributors, you can <laughs> you can't find any weirdos. No, here's what we know. What we know, what we have learned, what Dave Weigel of Slate discovered is that uh, Democratic givers – so these candidates right. send out emails trying to get money over, you know, over the internet. And uh, there was a sort of test case of two different kinds of emails, one uh, in no which – No Coke and then one Coke. No Coke and one – right. And, and the, ones that, the ones that mentioned the Coke brothers or used the, the name Coke – Three times the response. Wow. So that's A-B testing. They call that A-B testing. Right? Exactly. You send out a bunch of them and the, the, the a, a don't have Coke and B have Coke and B does better. And then you send uh, – the, say the B ones back to the A ones and, and you just keep, keep refining and refining and refining. That's right. actually so here's smart. the key. So here's the key to the demonization. It's not about the electorate. It's not about Republicans. Yeah. It's, it's about not about anything. It is about – so what they have done is they have taken – uh, and obs- these relatively obscure uh-huh. people who do not actually want a lot of attention, 
and they have made them famous. They've made them famous in a certain cat in a certain place among right. a certain number of people. It's niche. They have turned them into yeah figures niche. of horror and terror. Well, and now they're raising it, money off them. But in other words, it is, our about, side right. does that with Rachel Maddow, right? You know, six hundred thousand people watch Rachel Maddow, uh, but at least two million uh, conservatives at any given time are complaining about her. So it's right. sort of the same thing. Although, I mean, I don't. I mean, yes, I, it's it's strange to. But it's but, it, it, but, it's not strange. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. It's not strange for a political operation to do that, I guess. But it is so. There's something weird about the fact that the, the Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid seems to be unable to go one day. Without mentioning private citizens in some kind of demonized way, it, it does seem to me that's weird. That's that that gets to the, the that that gets to like some uncomfortable, um, you know, sort of power politics that don't that don't sit that well. I mean, well, I, I don't know about that because I just think that proves uh, how desperate they are and how much they are now relying on this strategy uh-huh. to raise money from their own people. In other words, that what they are trying to do is scare. Rich Democrats and Democratic donors, not even the Democratic electorate, just the donors, into ponying up. That's what this is all about. <laughs> what if it works, you know? though? Well, I mean, it is working. Look, it I mean, you working. know, I remember years ago. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not making an equivalent. I, I accept your argument, and I agree it's outrageous. But I, I remember years ago. Um, I forget who it was. I actually met this guy. Uh, sent. Uh, uh, after the the Republican um, takeover of the House in 1994 under Newt Gingrich, created something called the Speaker's uh, this uh, the Speaker's Circle or the Speaker's Advisory Council or the Platinum Speaker's right. Advisory Council, yeah. and for and, and he sent uh, um, even not even large donors but moderate donors uh, to the Republican Party <laughs> a little box, and inside was a little cheap looking uh, gavel. Uh, a little gavel made out of balsa wood or something, very light, uh, and uh, and on it had a, like a, a metal-like plastic plaque, brass-colored plastic thing on the front that said uh, Speaker's Council. And um, you could keep it, but you could get uh, – you'd be really a member of the Speaker's Council if you send in $1,500. And, and for a lot of people, that was – I mean that was what they were sending anyway. But for they, they actually decided to send it to a, a, a lower-level, lower-grade – Republican donor, you know, people who are spending $50 or $75 a year. And a lot of them bumped themselves up to 1500 because they wanted the gavel. They want, they thought they were going to be on the speaker's advisory council. They thought that he would like be calling them at home and asking them for political advice, which of course never happened. So I mean, um, and I remember talking to somebody who did direct mail who said the thing that the rule of direct mail is, you know, they'd send letters out to people and it's about a 1% response, but you send letters out to people, you know, we need this, we need that. Uh, you've got to help us turn back the tide of Democrats in Congress, whatever it is. I mean, both sides do it. And the rule was always, whatever you do, don't read the white mail. <laughs> they would always say, never read the white mail because the white mail would come back in a white envelope, meaning not the envelope that you sent it in, meaning the person that you sent it to is probably kind of insane or adult or some way. And in the, in the envelope would always be depressing Things that reminded you of just how low you were sending out direct mail. <laughs> Sometimes people put in their wedding ring or like, I want to help Governor Reagan keep the, you know, yeah. I want Governor Reagan to stop fluoridating the water in Indiana. You know, this this in 1989. <laughs> and it would always be stuff, things of value that they didn't know what to do with. Um, <laughs> and so it's a, you know, raising money is a, it's not a, it's not, not, right. not, it's like making sausage. You don't really want to see it being done. But you're right. right. It is a sign of desperation. I just think the key is the key is to understand that you know uh, much of what happens in in 
in in this kind of politics is very considered. It's very premeditated. It is not, you know, it is not done out of you know an excess of passion and craziness or you know or or ideological no, there's fervor. A reason for it, right. There's a reason for everything, and these things are done purposefully. Now, now can can we should we can we move on to the things that people care about, yeah. like culture? Yeah. Um. So. Uh, you want one? Go ahead. Well, I mean, uh, um, two things came came up uh, this week, which I think were interesting. One was the, the there's there's a finale last night of How I Met Your Mother, uh, which is not a show I really ever watched, but I show people people really liked. It was very popular, lasted a long time. Um, and, and I, I'm looking right now for the early Fast Nationals, but I don't have them yet. Um, so I'm, I'm sure it did pretty well last night. Um. Uh, it did probably better than its average, mm-hmm. but they did a weird thing in that they actually – I mean this is a spoiler alert. So if you're a huge fan of that show and you haven't seen the finale and you for some reason uh, don't know this yet uh, – I mean I haven't didn't see it either, but I know it. Um, don't listen. But if you don't care, listen to this. Uh, so they killed off a character. So it was all about how I met your mother. The show was like this guy's dating life, and it was it was the conceit was the very beginning was that he was telling a story to his kids about how how he met their mom, and uh, uh, and at the end of it, uh, it turns out that the mom died, and he'd been a widower for many years, and his kids finally say something back to him, which is, um, why don't you just go out with Aunt Robin, who is the girl that he always kind of liked, but somebody else married or something, something, um. And there was this incredible explosion of, of viewer outrage at mm-hmm. the fact that they, the entire series really had been about marrying this woman who then dies so he can marry the woman he should have been with all along. And the truth is they filmed that part. They decided how to end it about you know the, I think the second season or third season of the show because yeah. they didn't know how long they were going to last. Um, and I, I just – to me, that, that, that seems surprising to me um, that there be this uh, – First of all, that, that that a show these days has has that level of of emotional attachment to it, right. and two that um, an offhand uh, comment in the the last five minutes, last three minutes of a TV show of a one hour special still, but still would have that much power. Am I, I mean, just crazy? I, I watched it. No, I watched it, and I, I haven't seen it in years. But I thought the first couple of seasons were were very good, and. Um, I have to say, I think the plot twist is actually quite brilliant, and that the rage is preposterous. Because you know, the shocking thing about the show was uh, that it made it very clear that these two characters, Ted and Robin, were were soulmates who were intended to be together, and they actually go out and they date and they're in love, and then she's too career minded. Right. And 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 not enough of a romantic, and they break up, and then she ends up going out with yet another one of the guys, and she marries him. But it's very clear in in the last episode. But it's very clear that they are not right for each other, at least in my estimation. And so the show where they actually say literally on the first episode, "Your mother is not Aunt Robin." Your mother is not Robin. Right. So whatever you see, what goes on here. So they pulled – actually, I think, a ex- really extraordinarily brilliant coup, which is that they they let they left this red herring uh-huh. for nine years and then pulled the reverse in the last five minutes. 
That's good storytelling, not bad really? storytelling. I think because otherwise, Why, but, uh, well, I don't know. <coughs> good storytelling doesn't shouldn't rely on about, the last. But it, it well, is it about rely how, on the last five minutes, right? I mean, no, that no, bad storytelling. I mean is, no, but what I mean is, it was about how he met their mother. The show, what he was telling the story uh-huh. of how he had a dating life, and then eventually he met their mother. Yeah. And then it turns out he was married to their mother. They had a couple of kids. His mother got cancer and died. He is now 50 years old. Nice. And he is finally going to so get impressive. together with the woman, you know, that was probably, you know, was the other person who was right for him. And I don't see why that's a problem. The episode, by the way, was lousy because it wasn't funny and it was full of <laughs> really of, yeah. cancer. <laughs> no, no, but no, but funny. So, no, but it was. It, yeah, it was. There was a it lot. Feels of, to like, me like I don't like strife. any ending like that that goes to the last minute. I mean, the, the, the idea of like, oh, the last five minutes, and, and then the guy jumps in the window and says, "I'm the one that killed the woman," and then jumps out. I mean, I'm not that interested in that. But 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 I I um I'm just more interested no, in the emotional. I mean. I just think people, for the fact that there's a fragmented audience and that there aren't that many, you know, frankly, even if if How I Met Your Mother did really well um, last night, it still was not a major hit. I mean, it was a major hit, but it still it didn't move that many people like like t- television did in the old days. I mean, we're not talking about twenty million, twenty five million people every week. But look, um, you know, you can't talk. About, I'm sorry, you cannot talk about this without talking about your own. Genius final episode. Oh, wait, wait. I'm no, sorry. Don't, don't bring it mine. Don't, don't I drag have to me bring into yours, this. I have to drag you into this because – I didn't do it. I was just an order taker. <laughs> no, but you know, you, you, you're, you're the, fi- the, yeah. final, the final episode. The last scene of Cheers and the final yeah. episode of Cheers and the last shot of the – Of the show? You know, of the, the last shot of the, of, the, of the bar outside in the rain, in the dark. That was a – that was a brilliant coup. That was a you know. You know who that was? Who was that? Who not? It's a, any for everyone over ninety who remembers the season finale of Cheers. Uh, there was a little you know. We smoke there's cigar smoking. Uh, the guy smokes cigars, and um, they're they're Cuban cigars. They were sent to me. I got ten boxes of Cuban cigars sent to me illegally from a friend of mine who was living in Hong Kong at the time. Did I ever tell the story? And I was on the hook for it. It was like, uh, and I got the bill, the Amex bill, like. A month and a half later for you know $10,000 or something and I put in for it and um, Paramount said, no, we don't really think – we don't. What, do you, what is this for? And I said, it's for Cheers, <laughs> the Cuban cigars for Cheers. And they said, um, uh, you know, I, we, I'm, we're not sure this really happened. So I had to, just, I had to have the finance guy at, at, uh, at Paramount look at the last scene of Cheers when they smoke cigars and they <laughs> pop open a box, you know. Mm-hmm. So it had to be a sealed box. Um, the The – the, the then then a guy knocks on the door, and uh, and I think he said the, the line was something like one more, like that was the, yeah. the what he said, and then uh, Ted says no no sorry we're closed and that's it. The guy knocking on the door was the was our agent, and he represented <laughs> uh, everyone and in Cheers including me and and all the writers and the, and the creators and the director and everything, and um and that's what he had been saying for the past. You know, nine months. Come on, one more, one more oh, year. One more year. One more year. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so like all true Hollywood stories, this one is about money. Um, I will say, I will say also, uh, not to not to just uh, you know grease grease uh, uh, Rob Long here, but uh, well, but go go to Amazon dot com and 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 put in the search window conversations with my agent, which is Rob's or, book about, or you can wait until um, July to do it. And uh, they're being reissued. The books are being reissued. 
Ah, okay. Wait till July. It's one of the best books oh, ever written about, about right, show business. So and that I, is absolutely true. So anyway. I know we have to wrap up, though, but can I ask you one more question about of the culture? Course. Of course. Stephen Colbert on the Colbert Report. Someone tweeted, I don't know, two days ago, whatever day it was, from his – from the show's Twitter feed, I guess a quote from something that he was – a joke that he made uh, you know, in his character as a conservative, which I guess allows him to do whatever he wants to do. And he said something about uh, ch- uh, Asians and Ching Chong. Ch- he made fun of the way Asians sound, the way Chinese sounds to Americans. And, so this is um, what happens to this podcast when I leave for a little while. <laughs> into these racial stereotypes. I mean, well, I mean, did you see this? All right. So, so he, so, and, and the people sort of, whatever, rightly, wrongly, I don't really, I'm not really judging it one way or the other, but they, like, they were outraged by it. Um, and I think more outraged by the fact that they knew Stephen Colbert was going to get away with it because he's a liberal and liberals get away with whatever they want. And if a conservative made that joke, um, if Rush Limbaugh had made that joke, uh, it'd be a you know six act play. Um, and so, so I guess yesterday Colbert then decided to use the entire show to mock and to sort of make fun of the people who were outraged by his you know racial humor. Which is but now we've descended in this weird level where he creates a fake straw man, then he embodies that fake straw man, and then he managed to pretend for all the liberals who love his show that he's in fact skewering conservatives who were complaining about his Asian whatever uh, uh, diatribe. I, it, whatever, I guess I don't. I'm now I'm sputtering in, in incoherence. But what 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 I what I find amazing about this is that nobody says the absolute. No one says what they really mean, which is. We are we call racism on each other too much, and uh, and it's the left that does it, and it's people like Colbert and who love Colbert who do it. And the minute it's done to them, uh, it's a uh, it's a joke. Well, that's, I mean, well, that's the problem when you live in a society that's gotten so meta, right? <laughs> Where you have right, right. You basically, yeah, you, you know, you have. I mean, someone on Twitter said something to the effect of. Uh, Fake conservative is eliciting waves of fake outrage <laughs> from conservatives, and right. there's something, and it, it actually reminds me of the whole Murphy Brown thing, where Dan Quayle criticized the producers of Murphy Brown for glorifying having a kid out of wedlock, and the producers right. of Glor- Murphy Brown then made it seem as if Dan Quayle was attacking the fictional Murphy Brown in the Murphy Brown universe, right, and um. And I agree with you entirely. I, I think the problem is that this happens to conservatives a lot, and I don't blame conservatives, is that we can tell that liberals are often using these fake standards that they don't really believe in to beat up conservatives. And so when conservatives then, who feel like there's a double standard, pick up that same standard and try to use it against liberals, and liberals like um, get enraged at the idea that – and sort of scoff at the idea that that standard should be applied to them. And you know, that's the mess that we're in. You know, um, this is this is my my uh, my my big message for 2014 and 2016 <laughs> to the a right. Special theme for that. There's a big message, which is music. Should be music. Go ahead. Right. Don't get baited. Yeah. Uh, Jonah's describing um, something that happens is now happening rather consciously. That Sandra Fluke was the ultimate uh, version of, in which. Um, uh, you know, it's what we call trolling. You know, and on, on on the internet, it's a way of prov- provoking to cause a response and then getting enraged 
by the right. response. Everybody has to stay cool, stay calm, <laughs> keep it, keep it together. You don't have to start. And you don't this have from to, you. <laughs> you don't have to defend people who say crude things because liberals are attacking them, and you don't have to get into fights about matters that are beside the point in order to prove your bona fides. Don't fall for it. Don't take the bait. Keep your eyes focused on what you care about and what the future right. is. Don't take the bait. I love the idea otherwise- that John Pedoritz, John Pedoritz, you have so many qualities, John. Uh, you are a brilliant, a brilliant writer, thinker, oh, talker, oh. person. Uh, I would not describe you, however, as chill. <laughs> I am not. I am not. <laughs> I am Be not more chill, chill, says John Pedoritz. I'm saying that in in a political <laughs> fight, yeah, okay, in which the effort, every, in which every effort is being made to make with you the with right you lose lose its temper, right? right? To make the right lose its temper, so you can say, "Look, they're crazy. They're losing their temper. You can't give them power. They're too dangerous." The obvious, you know, rule one hundred and one is: don't play their game. Play your own game. Don't play their game. You don't have. You don't even have to be chill. You just don't play their game. Come on, baby, be chill. You know, <laughs> don't don't be Charlie Brown. Don't let them be Lucy. Don't let Lucy hold the football, and don't go and kick the football. Cool. And then fall on your fall on your tush. Don't do totally. it. Totally. Totally. Agree. Don't do it. Um, so, uh, gentlemen, you know, I was really, uh, in Vegas to, uh, you know, I, I did my, uh, three night, uh, stand at Chuckles, uh, uh, you know, it was great because, uh, you know, I brought, uh, yeah, I had some special guests, you know, <laughs> carrot top did a couple of minutes and I smashed a watermelon over Gallagher's head. Uh, it was really like, 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 like old times. It was uh, really kind of a, a, a beautiful thing. Um, <laughs> But so I don't really have any appearances to to mention because you know I guess you guys already missed my 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 sold out set here. So uh, Jonah, That's why where I have left you been? Vegas to get away from? <laughs> That's really sad. That is, you know, I, I'm sorry. I was working too blue for you, Jonah. I was working <laughs> blue, and I know you you had you had you had your daughter with you, so right. uh, you know I, I wouldn't want to have uh, you know offended her ears with my. Uh, with my rap. So, uh, Jonah, where are you going to be? Well, first of all, let me apologize for vanishing for like 20 minutes from the podcast. Um, there was a scheduling conflict that I was unaware of until the phone call came in. I had to give a contractually obliged radio interview. <laughs> and, um, and so I just, I just jumped off and I really apologize. That was entirely my fault. Um, it was a radio interview to help promote my appearance at the Pennsylvania Leadership Conference, which is this Friday oh, in, there you go. in Harrisburg. Uh, and then from there, I'm leaving for Hillsdale, where I'm going to be teaching a course on journalism for about 10 days. No, you cannot audit the course. Um, but on Can you audit the course? You cannot audit the yeah, course. Yeah, I want to audit the course. Can I, I like audit to audit it. Yeah. Could you April, check into auditing to see if I can audit it? And on April 10, I'll be giving a big speech at Hillsdale um, while I'm there, and that is open to the public. And then on April 24th, I will be at Williams College. And on April 28th, I will be in Kansas City for the Kansas Policy Institute dinner. Man. Um, Whoa. Whoa. Man. Um, huh. Wow. 
Like now, Rob, uh, we, now, we now understand that Rob's, uh, Rob's remarkable book, Conversations with My Agent, will be uh, brought back into print yeah. in July. So both everybody should. Gonna be, you, get, you, get, you get both of them by Bloomsbury. Wow, that's everybody great. Should. Being sort of put together. Everybody they should. decided I wasn't going to write another one. They may as well just keep sending that one out, which I think is uh, probably a smart idea. You're going to write another one. <laughs> uh, and by the way, I would also like to mention that Rob Long uh, has yeah. – uh, has an article in this month's commentary, and as we speak, uh, so go to commentarymagazine.com. Uh, look for uh, look on the left hand column a little ways down for a piece called Mister America. Uh, I am uh, as of this moment, as I am speaking to you, taking it out from behind the paywall so that uh, Ricochet uh, listeners and podcast listeners and Ricochet people can read it. It is a piece about Henry Bushkin's uh, remarkable, in many ways, book about Johnny Carson. Uh, it's one of the best pieces, uh, cultural pieces, I've published in commentary, and wow. I really urge you all to read it. So here my, here's my question about that. Um, when do I get the check? You should get the check, I believe, tomorrow. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> J- Jonah, Jonah has written for, for me several times, and he gets the check. Jonah, <laughs> yeah, have okay. you gotten the check? I have gotten the check. Okay, you classic uh, writers. You know, question, if I didn't get the like, check, yeah, exactly. It's like <laughs> every writer wants to do the same thing. Which is wonderful. I'm glad you enjoyed it. When 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 are you going to pay me? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I was very happy to do it. And uh, and uh, anyway, so uh, Ricochet people, commentarymagazine.com, Mister America by Rob Long, now free for your reading perusal. And then please subscribe to Commentary. Uh, it's nineteen ninety five a year. It's the best magazine in America, and you better do it because otherwise you're just you're just a loser. There you go. There you go. Isn't that a good? That's really. really I, I consider that, I consider that a really nice uh, sales great job. Great sales right? pitch. I like that. Great, I like thank it. you very much. You know, because I'm going to say, oh, we thank you for even thinking of us. I'm not saying that. No. Stop. Subscribe pandering. or be a loser. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, well, gentlemen, thank you very much. I must run to McCarran uh, Airport uh, to catch a plane and uh, and who knows, maybe uh, lose all $490 that I won in the <laughs> slot machines at McCarran Airport. Uh, you can only lose at this point because um, you're true. up. That's the, that's that's the problem. That's, that's the, the problem. So, so wrong. It's so, so wrong. wrong. I'm so wrong. We're so wrong. Okay. Anyway, thanks very much and we will uh, reconnoiter in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Fellas, I'll next actually time. stay on the whole podcast this time. <laughs> well, then I'll have to get off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. See you guys. See okay, you guys. See you guys. Bye. It's Blackjack Dill. Come on, hit me, man.
Ricochet. Join the conversation. <laughs>